1: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
2: my God, I can't go back to New York. New York is poison. It's horrible. I don't want to live like that. I don't want my professional success to be my number one value. That's crazy. So I just wanted to get away. And Mexico City was the last place I'd been, and I was in love with it.
3: This is Design Matters with Debbie Milman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with writer and activist Zoe Mendelson about why she wasn't cut out for government work.
2: I'm not made to be in an office.
3: (laughs) She also talks about the importance of sexual knowledge for women.
2: We should have at least enough power to have control over our own bodies.
3: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors.
0: I love music. I love listening to music and entertaining with music and singing along with music. And I love music playing all through my house. Even before Sonos asked if I'd be interested in partnering with them, I had a Sonos system in my home. I chose Sonos because the acoustics are breathtaking and the design is world-class. Speaking from years of experience, everything about setting up a Sonos system is easy and intuitive. All you need to do is plug in a speaker, and open the Sonos app. I can control the sound through my app, through Apple AirPlay 2, or my favorite, with my voice. And the sound? Well, the sound is glorious. Sonos works with experts in acoustics and engineering, then collaborates with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an unprecedented, state-of-the-art listening experience. Sonos also uses a remarkable technology called TruePlay, to ensure that Beyoncé sounds like Beyoncé, and Kendrick sounds like Kendrick, and Radiohead sounds like Radiohead. I am so thrilled Sonos is partnering with me here on Design Matters. If you want to know more about the best sound system in the world, please go to Sonos.com to learn more. Support for Design Matters also comes from The Citizenry. I'm a travel addict who's always on the road. But you don't need to be one to accent your home with the most extraordinary and beautiful handcrafted goods from around the globe. I know I have with my gorgeous new lumbar pillow from the citizenry. With a strong emphasis on fair trade and safe work environments, the Citizenry partners with master artisans in more than 15 countries, bringing each region's craft traditions directly to you, from the incredible woven baskets of Uganda to hand-thrown ceramics from Ireland to the Citizenry's beloved lumbar pillows from Oaxaca. So much furniture and home decor is cookie cutter and lifeless. The Citizenry aims to put soul, story, and purpose back into your home, making the world a little smaller in the process. For a $50 gift voucher toward your first purchase of $200 or more, go to citizenrypodcast.com and enter promo code Design Matters, all one word. Again, that's promo code design Matters at citizenrypodcast.com. That's spelled C-I-T-I-Z-E-N-R-Y podcast.com. It all started with a Google search. Zoe Mendelson was looking for some very specific sexual information, and the rabbit hole she fell into left her more confused than ever. She concluded she didn't know enough about her own body, and the Internet wasn't helping. So she teamed up with Jackie Yon and Maria Conejo to create Pussypedia, a free digital encyclopedia dedicated to the vagina. Zoe Mendelsohn is a journalist, researcher, information designer, and content strategist based in Mexico City. She joins me today to talk about the creation of her new site, her writing and research, and why in this day and age, so many of us are still so ignorant about our sexuality. Zoe, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Zoe, I understand that when you were seven years old, you got to spend an evening hanging out with Kurt Vonnegut. Tell us about that.
2: Oh, yeah, that was really cool. Um, My mom was photographing an event that was in honor of him, some ceremony. I don't remember what it was. And she couldn't get a babysitter, and she had to take me with. And I remember the first thing I told him was, hey, you know... My aunt's a manager at Gap and I can get you a discount there.
0: <laughs> Did he take you up on it? Did so, you go gap wow. shopping? Together? Did you he
2: said to the person next to him, Did you hear that? She said she could get me a discount at the gap. <laughs> <laughs> and actually he hated people and and he spent the whole night with me and I was sitting on his lap and he was telling me really fun stories and he said, look at that lady. She plays the violin. And I said, how do you know? And she, he said, because she has a vicky. And I said, what's a vicky? And he said, it's a hickey, but you get it from the violin. And I said, what's a hickey? And he said, actually, never mind. And then I had to ask my mom later, what's a hickey?
0: Zoe, <laughs> <laughs> so you're a fifth-generation Chicago native. Your father was a lawyer, and your mother, as you mentioned, was a photographer. It seems as if your early life could be segmented into Before and after they got divorced categories. Would you say that's correct?
2: Yeah, they got divorced when I was really young, though. But it's sort of everything changed a lot. Yeah.
0: You were considered a poor kid in the rich neighborhood you first grew up in. And then when your parents divorced and you moved, you were the rich girl in a poor neighborhood, so to speak.
2: Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah, Enlightening. It was the most instructive thing that ever happened and, and luckiest I think I mean I had such a chip on my shoulder about being the poor kid like all these you know girls would have a new winter jacket every winter and say why do you have the same jacket as last year we were pretty young so even kids being like you're poor <laughs> you know real creative insult <laughs> but um why do you live in an apartment you know that kind of stuff and, and feeling bad for myself about it because it was this like a lower status but then moving And realizing in a lot of ways I was richer than the kids that had more money than me, you know, because, you know, my parents were struggling and maybe their parents had decent jobs, but I had so many more resources at my disposal. And that was just very obvious even before I could identify it. And so I sort of learned about my white privilege. And then I was, you know, because I was white, I was the rich white girl. I felt the need to tell everyone my whole life story. Like, no, I'm not rich, but it it immediately felt stupid because like I could tell, even though I was too young to articulate why that I had more privilege. It was just obvious, and it made me very sensitive to those things and gave me very concrete reasons to have my political beliefs from a really young age, and and it made me have a sense of responsibility. And I'm grateful for that.
0: You moved to Uptown Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, That neighborhood has the highest concentration of sex offenders, homeless shelters, methadone clinics, and the last single room occupancy building in the city. It's affectionately known, if you can call it that, as the world's largest psychotic hillbilly ghetto jungle. (laughs) <laughs>
2: well, I don't know if those things are still true about Uptown. They were definitely true when I wrote my college thesis, but that was a while ago now. Um, Not that long ago, Zoe. Okay. You're still in your 20s. Right. But I don't know. I, I mean, Uptown's been gentrifying a lot. It's different. I don't know. I, I, I haven't spent much time there lately. But yeah, it was a crazy radical difference from the almost all white. I mean, My suburb that I grew up in, Glencoe, was so white that I walked up to a black lady when I was like eight and said, hey, whose nanny are you? Mm -hmm. What did she say? She said, I'm not a nanny. I live three houses down from you. And I didn't get it about why what I had done was bad. And then I moved into a neighborhood where we were very much in the minority as white people. How did that experience
0: impact your beliefs? You mentioned before that it really influenced how you think
2: about the world politically. Well, I got a real dose of what is reality and being exposed to sort of raw darkness of, you know, there's a lot of mentally ill people there. And there's no it's not a gang violence problem. It's more homeless people and and mentally ill people. And. A lot of prostitutes, like very visible and just, okay. this is real. This is people's reality. And and just Chicago has freezing cold winters and having it in my face all the time was a constant reminder that like, okay, I'm going to walk into my nice warm house now and all those people are going to stay out here in this freezing icy hell. And I don't know. I mean, I guess a lot of kids grow up in the city. Maybe that's not such a unique experience, but I felt it.
0: As you were growing up, you had some interesting jobs. I know you worked in several restaurants but were a terrible hostess because you would have to stand still a lot, and you're not someone who likes to stand still. Mm. Uh, You were also a tutor, and one of your chubby little prepubescent rabble-rousers, as you've put it, was none other than Chance the Rapper. Is it true that you were the person that introduced him to Wu-Tang
2: Clan? No. this This is more accurately... We ran into each other one day when we were both on our way to some the same event, and I had the Wu Tang Clan handbook in my purse, which was like a fake Louis Vuitton, (laughs) which I would never touch with a ten foot pole now, but I thought I felt very glamorous with it. And he was with some of his friends. And they were listening to Wu-Tang Clan and I pulled the book out of my bag and they were all like, oh, she's so cool. And I was like, yeah, Wu-Tang Clan is really important. And I started sort of lecturing them because I'd been reading it about their philosophy and whatever. So that was more, that's the story. But were you also his nanny? No, I wasn't his nanny. I was his tutor. Oh, uh, his tutor. Um, I was his tutor because I had gotten in a big fight with my Spanish teacher because I was trying to organize a protest against some standardized tests they were making us like learn to, for, learn to the test. And so they took me out of the class, and they needed me to be and have a minimum number of instruction minutes during the day, and so they gave me this 45-minute period where I was going to tutor chance. We are already homies. I had walked up to him the first week of school and just thought he was really adorable. And I said, hey, nice muscle shirt. And he said, thanks. It's going to look really good on me when I get some muscles. And, <laughs> and I said, come to the freshman retreat. Here's a flyer. It's going to be really fun. I was organizing it. And then when I was walking away, he said to his friend, I'm a wife shorty. And I was like, turn around, like, be, don't dis, be disrespectful. Um, but... Yeah, we've been super close friends ever since, and I love him so much, and he's such a good person.
0: At that point in your life, you had already started writing. In fact, by the time you were 14 years old, you had submitted a piece to an anthology edited by the writer Amy Goldwasser. Titled, "Red: The Next Generation of American Writers, Teenage Girls on What Fires Up Their World Today, you submitted an essay titled, Places of Worship, and it was accepted, Talk about how you heard about the anthology, what made you decide to write the piece that you did. It was evident, even at 14, you were becoming a political activist. Um, And then how that
2: inclusion influenced the direction of your life. Um, I got an email. It was just a forwarded to a forwarded to a forwarded, and I'd wanted to be a writer. And so my mom was proud of, you know, my school essays and would show them to her friends. So one of her friends got that email and sent it to me, and I sent in the essay. And Amy says, like, oh, that you know, opened so many doors for me. No, you opened so many doors for me, Amy. Um, she helped me publish in later in the LA Times an op-ed I wrote about how the college financial aid system needed an overhaul. Um, and later during college, some in the Huffington Post, and later, and actually has never stopped trying to open doors for me when and where she can. And. I'm so grateful for that. I, you, it doesn't matter if you're a great writer. You don't actually. I mean, people say, like, oh, I want to be a writer. How do you do that? And I'm like, you just have to know someone. It's not a meritocracy. It's it's really not. It's totally unfair rigged system, and I, I was really lucky. You attended Barnard College of Columbia
0: University in New York City and got a Bachelor of Arts degree in Urban Studies. Why not writing? What What was the reason that you decided to choose urban studies.
2: I was fascinated by the place I grew up. Uptown is the most diverse neighborhood in Chicago. It's it's got Vietnamese immigrants, it's Mexican immigrants, African immigrants from a few different countries. It's got this gorgeous old architecture that's just in in a state of disrepair that it fascinated me, and you know, because there's this history that's like, "Hey, I'm here. Don't you want to know about me?" You know, you have these big, beautiful, old, fancy buildings with SROs inside of them, and I'm like, "What happened here?" And I had taken a class um, at DePaul during high school called Comparative Urbanism uh, with this brilliant professor Winifred Coran, and and she blew my mind teaching me about cities. We learned about Istanbul and Mexico City and Paris and destruction and growth. And and I just really fell in love with cities. And I think it's fascinating that cities are something that humans have made since the beginning of humans. And why do we conglomerate ourselves? And it's just this weird natural phenomenon of all these strange, simple reasons like we need to be close together so we can pass objects back and forth so that we can trade and build shelters. And I just have been fascinated by cities forever. I figured I could write about cities, and that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I did for a long time. By your
0: senior year of college, you were writing your thesis, taking a full course load and working as the market manager for local farmers markets. And you've said this about that time in your life. Uh, You were terrified of graduating, and because you didn't want to face the fear, you didn't want to stop moving. And that's something I can really relate to. Why were you so scared?
2: I'm so flabbergasted that I have no idea where you found all this stuff. There's a little bit of a correction. So I was working... I was selling mushrooms at the farmer's market. I was also selling greens. I was also occasionally selling jam. And then after college, I started working as a manager. Actually, at the very end of college, I started training for that position. I was also babysitting. I was also working as a hostess. Also, it wasn't just that I worked in seven restaurants. That's what it says on my website. The truth is I got fired from seven restaurants <laughs> <laughs> because of the not standing still thing. <laughs> yeah, because of attitude and not standing still and like, yeah, yes. Oh my god. Anyway, yeah, I didn't I didn't want to stop moving because I had committed this huge error which was to build my identity on this sort of thing I was hiding behind like a victim narrative like I have to work this much I'm poor you know it was weird I got to Barnard and it was like all these super rich girls and I was like I'm not you you know, I had been really acutely aware of my privilege in high school. I went to a high school where 60% of the students were below the poverty line, including me. I had a free lunch star on my ID, (laughs) although I had a much higher quality of life, I think, than most of my friends that also had free lunch stars. But then I got to Barnard, and I was like, I'm not you guys. You know, I was really disgusted with them. So I, I worked all through college. I I worked myself sick all the time. I, I, I was constantly on antibiotics because I was literally sick all the time. What and, do you think
0: you were running from?
2: Uh, not being enough. Because if you're a victim, then it doesn't matter. You can't fail. It's not your fault if you fail. Why it's were a, you trying so hard? Trying so hard. To n- not fail. Because I I felt a sense of responsibility. I don't know. I I can't I have no idea. That's a great question. Who knows? My parents did not pressure me ever. Anything I did, they were like, That's amazing. You know, it was like (laughs) So it was
0: all self-inflicted. Yeah,
2: I have no idea.
0: You were forced to stop when you were in a car accident. You drove into a wall.
2: Oh yes, I did. I drove into a wall from a full stop. Oh my God! My boss already despised me. The day before I crashed her car, I actually lost twelve hundred dollars worth of EBT chips, which is like a. Food. I know what they are. Yeah. Yes. So she was already infuriated with me. And I was driving her car and she was in the passenger seat. And we were on Broadway on the 120 somethings where there's a wall dividing broad- Broadway where the train is. And from a red light, it turned green. And instead of just going, I turned the steering wheel, I yanked the steering wheel to the right and just smashed the car into the wall. And I got out of the car, shaking. And she's like, God, you're not going to break me. And I was like, Oh, I didn't realize we were at that point. <laughs> <laughs> My God. And I went to go get in the passenger side. She's like, what are you doing? You're driving us back. So you didn't total the car. I didn't total the car. And I was like, you're crazy. I'm done with this job. You don't care about me. This is crazy. I, I, I need to stop. This is insane. Then I got fired. Well, you said it was at this time you realized a huge asset. You could
0: reach a terrible point and fail and be resilient. I think that's almost worth any Experience to have that realization. How did you come to the realization? How did you find that so quickly?
2: It wasn't quickly. It, it wasn't in that moment. I was sort of just in that moment, like, I can't do this anymore because I can't do anything. I was like so tired. I was leaving my purse places. I was, you know, couldn't have conversations. And I went to California and I stayed in my grandparents' house for a few weeks. And then I, Moved back to New York. I got a nannying job. I started slowly adding things in. I got an internship. I got a column at Untapped Cities. I remember before I got the column, I went to the Municipal Arts Society Conference, which I'd been to in college in in a time when I felt still capable and hopeful for my life. And that day at the conference was one of the worst days of my life. I was like, I don't belong here. I don't belong anywhere. And I pitched this maps column to Untapped Cities and they took it. And I was like wait, I am part of this world. This was all a narrative in my own head. This had no basis in reality. And I am making things I'm proud of again. And the narrative's just not ever as true as... (laughs) <laughs> you think it is. Isn't that the case? Yeah.
0: Now, from what I read, you started your career working in government. You worked at the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, at the Council on the Environment of New York City. You also worked for Chicago Senator Dick Durbin and the Office of State Representative Sarah Fagenholtz in Chicago. What were the biggest things you learned working in government?
2: So the Council on the Environment of New York City is the organization that runs the farmer's markets. That's who fired me. Okay. Then I went to go work for the Department of Housing Preservation and Development after that. I learned working in government that I don't want to work in government. Um, At Senator Dick Durbin's office, I was often assigned to the phones. And I was like, this is the broken point of the system and it's the first point of contact. Why do you have interns answering the phones? Like, this is really representative government. These people are calling to tell us what they think and you have these kids who don't care, you know, sitting here. There's no real system for making sure we're taking down people's requests or or comments or opinions and they're really just kind of trying to protect themselves from those things. Like, it's being deflected. And I was like, this is not okay. And then I was assigned to do research for the DREAM Act. So I was reading all these letters from people in immigrant detention centers. And this is back in 2011. And they were disturbing. They were incredibly disturbing letters. And I was supposed to be pulling data from them. And in the files, there would be the letter that had been sent back, which was just like, we can't do anything for you. But here's some numbers for some lawyers. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not okay, and this is not an institution that is moving quickly enough for me to want to be a part of. But also, I mean, it's not one blanket experience. The Department of Housing Preservation Development was doing this really deep long-term study about subsidized housing and health and well-being, and I I really admired what they were doing. I was also really angry that we had to prove that. I was like, you have to do a 10-year, gazillion-dollar study to prove that Having decent housing is going to improve people's health and well-being. I felt that same sense of desperation. Like, can we all move on and take that as an assumption, please? And just <laughs> put this gazillion dollars toward trying to figure out how to make that happen. I also learned that I am not made to be in an office. <laughs> Fluorescent lights make me narcoleptic and just get super anxious. It felt like a feral Mowgli thing. You now describe your career as follows.
0: You research, think, talk, and write about cities, emojis, tech, language, data, maps, pussies, and other semi-related topics. And you write that your work might vary widely, but it's all a protracted temper tantrum against your generation's nihilist streak. What do you mean by that?
2: I just think nihilism's the devil, and uh, I, I think millennials have simultaneously adopted this vomitrocious (laughs) culture of performative wokeness and utter nihilism. I got kicked out of, not kicked out, but in trouble in multiple classes in college for sort of like aggressively, not attacking my classmates, but, but accusing them of, of not caring. I got pulled aside to have a talking to, and I had, Two professors say, You're alienating your classmates. And I was like, They're alienating themselves. It's like what we were reading was fiction or something. You know, I remember my best friend from high school, her little brother went to prison. He shot someone and killed them our senior year of high school and went to prison. He was 16. He was tried as an adult. It was, they were in a fight and that guy was trying to kill him and he killed that guy with his own, with that guy's own gun. Like, I, love Sam. And that experience really changed me in holding sort of multiple truths because he killed someone. And Sam's trial, he, got, he was tried as an adult because of these racist zero-tolerance policies in Illinois. And he got 45 years, no option of parole. And Jillian, my dear, dear, dear friend, called me, you know, to tell me the verdict. And My heart just shattered for her, just her whole family and Sam. And it's just the injustice and the unfairness and the darkness and all of it. And then I had to go back to class and we were talking about this idiotic book called Gang Leader for a Day by Sadir Venkatesh, who I think is so wildly irresponsible. And it was this stupid book about his experience going and hanging out with these gang leaders the cover is him wearing a leather jacket with like his leg up on something looking really badass. And the subtitle is A Sociologist Takes to the Streets. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. So we went back to class to discuss that book. And I could, I was already infuriated that the book had been assigned. And he's like, What did you learn from this book? And this girl like, raises her hand. She's like, gangs aren't that bad and I was like exactly that's exactly what this book is saying this is not okay and I just lost it and I was like no this is the worst book ever I can't believe you signed this book the girl's like what well, makes you an authority on gangs and I don't want to say I'm like I'm not gonna turn my you know best friend's tragedy into my authenticity chip and I don't need to answer you and I was like this isn't fiction like these people are poor because you're rich like this is a simple equation like you can't treat this like it's not important to you personally like you know I I always just felt more emotionally invested in what we were learning and I remember another time like a professor saying something like we're talking about how do you incentivize people to invest in poor urban areas and she said something like who has stake in Camden and everyone was just not even paying attention in class and I banged my fists on the table and said, you all have stake in Camden. You have stake in Camden. You have steak in Camden. Like, it's right over there. It's not even that far away. You know, <laughs> this isn't fiction. And I just felt so frustrated at the way that people feel like these realities we we're reading about were adjacent to their lives rather than part of their own lives and their own stories. How do you define performative wokeness? performative wokeness is like when really privileged people who aren't coming from a place of personal hurt or or feelings of exclusion are going around trying to show everybody how woke they are by calling things out or just like casually mentioning these, you know, good things they did or times that they stood up for people so that they can get these fake woke tokens and credit for being woke, and it's really disgusting, and it's the opposite of wokeness. How do you feel about
0: your generation today? Do you still feel like they have this nihilistic streak?
2: Yeah. I mean, we were raised on Vice magazine, which was, like, super racist, and I would be like, this is racist, and they would be like, whatever, no, it's not. And, I, and now, like, the guy who founded Vice is, like, literally leading, like, alt-right groups. One of the guys that founded Vice. Yeah, it was just this post-postmodernism, That's so sad because, you know, critical theory is great. We really needed it. It did a lot of good. But then if you use it to deconstruct everything and there's no truth with a capital T and you can't have progress because you can't say these are my morals, you know. And so we have this sort of rupture where we don't understand that you can't actually just Instagram your super fancy vacation and then be Instagramming, you know, like. (laughs) <laughs> call out culture stuff. And that that's incoherent. Like your personal choices need to be aligned with your values, not what you post. In
0: reaction to the election of Donald Trump, you helped create Cool You Voted, which is an interactive op-ed against nihilism that you helped create for the Association of Young Americans. Can you describe what you did and why? You know, I really blame us for Trump being elected. It's so interesting. I I blame my generation, not yours. We all, I guess we're all blaming ourselves, (laughs) which is probably something we should be doing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a part of our nihilism is being like, democracy doesn't work. It's already, you know, citizens united, so it's over. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Hold on. Let's talk about some simple logic, right? They get all this money and then they use it on their campaigns, but we vote for free. So what are you talking about? Done. You're, you know, we need to be holding them accountable by voting. There's so many more elections than the ones that we pay attention to. We still have this power to vote and and get these people out if they're not doing the things that we want. We're not even going to do that. So anyway, I was just trying to explain the logic about you need to be keeping your elected officials accountable. You need to be telling them what you want. You need to make them uncomfortable and think that people are really paying attention to them and, and watching what they're doing and trying to get people to just be more civically engaged. I got so much hate mail after that. I, Why? It was the least successful project I've ever done. People were infuriated. I think a lot of it was just that pe- that Trump had just been elected and everyone was freaking out. And I proposed, you know, that it was our own fault and that was not very popular. (laughs) How are you feeling about your generation
0: now in relation to the upcoming election? Do you think that there will be a groundswell? I I am constantly incredulous that there are not more
2: people in the street. I think there will be, you know, performative wokeness, not always entirely performative, like all the voting sticker Instagram posts, like, great, that's great. Go vote. Show everyone you voted. Fantastic. You know, I hope so. I'm not that optimistic. I mean, I'm, all my work tries to inspire hope, but I don't actually have that much. Oh, Zoe, that's depressing.
0: <laughs> in addition to the LA Times and Wired and Red, your writing has been featured in publications including Slate, Print Magazine, Next City, Hyperallergic, Huffington Post, Untapped Cities, The Date Report, Nerve.com, and Fast Company. And your emoji storytelling column in Fast Company went viral. But it was a column that you never intended to write and which nearly branded you as the Emoji Girl for life. In fact, I was a little bit nervous to even bring it up. I thought maybe it would feel too lighthearted.
2: I think the emojis, I was embarrassed about the emojis in the beginning of Emojis. I was like, wait, wait, this is a joke that got totally out of control. How did this happen? Now I'm Emoji Girl. And... I didn't really understand why it was happening at the time and felt like my career was taking this uncontrollable detour. And I was having all these big doors open to me through emojis. I was actually earning a living off emoji consulting for years. It was supporting me. And that felt like this absurd thing that was happening to me. But in the end, I realized that it made utter and total sense because... It's information design. It's symbolic communication. It's visual communication. And I was actually secretly loved doing it and felt guilty about that. But I no longer feel embarrassed about the emoji stuff because I realized um, in the culmination of it and the last emoji thing I did, which was to design this contest for Mexico City to have an official pack of emojis, that... There was this profound thing about comparing the different sets that people submitted. There was, there was 99, I think, emoji packs submitted. And it was amazing to see how there were these common focal points of the city and the culture there that, that everyone included. Like there's these wooden crates called guacales that you see in the markets, but Mexico city is like made of guacales. And so they're everywhere. And it's just this strange anomaly, but that's such a present part of everyone's consciousness. And also the differences, like people from the outer parts of Mexico city included the bike cabs, which you only see in poorer neighborhoods. And so there's sort of something really human about symbols. I realized it integrated perfectly into everything that I had done and and loved and wanted to do in the future, and um, it was okay that it opened all those doors for me, and I don't regret that at all.
0: Zoe, I know that uh, you're living in Mexico City now. Tell me why you moved
2: there. In a very strange turn of events, I was living in New York, working like seven days a week and trying to write and very stressed out and my dad married a flight attendant and he said hey Zoe I just married Wynn now you can fly for free until you're 24 and I was 23 and a half and I was like uh okay are you positive because I'm gonna quit all my jobs right now and get a credit card and leave (laughs) and so that's what I did I quit all my jobs I left town I traveled and when I was traveling I was having this weird experience where I was not connecting with people. And I was like, this is weird. People like me. I can't make any friends. What's going on? And it's because I was being so New York. I was meeting everyone and being like, and I have a column at Pass Company, and I'm a writer, and I'm professional, and these are my professional accomplishments. Nice to meet you. You know? And people were like, um, okay. And that's so normal here. That's so normal in New York. And, and it took me, like, all five months to realize that. Also, it took me five months to stop being anxious about how I was going to, you know, slip backwards in my professional advancement that I had made to actually be able to enjoy the trip. And when I finally realized all that, I was like, oh, my God, I can't go back to New York. New York is poison. It's horrible. I don't want to live like that. I don't want my professional success to be my number one value that's crazy so I just wanted to get away and Mexico City was the last place I'd been and I was in love with it it was also practical because it's pretty close um, and it's very cheap and so I came back to New York and I asked to have meetings with every adult that had ever patted me on the head and I said I need to move away can you send me any work can you give me any work I can do XYZ And I got one contract, my friend and mentor, Michael Yap, um, who also is the designer, the web designer for Pussypedia and someone who's taught me so much. And and he got this project and he hired me on and he paid me way more than he needed to pay me. (laughs) And I took that money and I ran and To my surprise after that, I was like, oh, I got another gig. I got another gig. Okay. And so I kept subletting my apartment in New York until my lease was up. And then I came back to New York and I just uh, told my friends to come over and said, take anything you want. Then I took the rest to Housing Works and I went back to Mexico and I just prayed and hoped and hoped that I wouldn't have to move back. And I didn't. (laughs) Let's talk about
0: one of your most recent projects, something that I referenced in my intro that is extraordinary. You've created a website titled Pussypedia. Zoe, what is Pussypedia?
2: Pussypedia is a free, bilingual, inclusive encyclopedia of the pussy, written to be easy to understand, but also um, with as reliable information as we could possibly provide. You
0: began this project many years ago. It was ignited by a Kickstarter campaign, and I was wondering if you would read the original letter of intent.
2: Sure. It says, "Hi, I'm Zoe Mendelson. Once I googled whether or not all women can squirt, I didn't find anything conclusive on the subject." but I did stumble across a medical journal article about the clit orgasm and the G-spot orgasm and how they're not two separate things. They activate each other in one perfectly integrated system, and I was like, what? And I was also absolutely sure that every single person with a pussy that I know would want to know this information. But as I read, the article referred to different parts of my body, and I couldn't imagine what they were or where they were, and I also didn't know what they do. It occurred to me that I didn't know very much about my pussy. A lot of other people don't know either. Medical science has only recently taken an interest in female anatomy beyond reproduction. Up until recently, the clitoris was not even mentioned in medical textbooks, and outside of medical science, people with pussies in Western civilization have been denied access to information about their bodies for centuries for cultural, religious, and patriarchal reasons. But learning about pussies is our right. Poor quality and inaccessible information is a dangerous injustice, and shame about vaginas should be a thing of the past. So we want to make Pussypedia. And you did. We did. And you did. We did. You launched this last month. How is it going? It's going so good. I mean, (laughs) turns out people are really interested in pussies. (laughs) You think? You think? (laughs) Um... It's been going really good. We have 75,000 views as of yesterday, visitors, 95,000 sessions. So a lot of people are coming back to the site and no hate mail yet, which blows my mind. Somebody asked me early on, like during the Kickstarter, like, what do you, what's your plan to deal with negative feedback? And I was like, I don't have one. I'm pretty sure everyone wants to know more about pussies. And I think I was right. I mean, we didn't have, like, a ton of press, but those numbers are crazy. That means people are really sharing it, and that makes me so happy. I'm so happy. You state that Pussypedia, as you
0: mentioned, is a free bilingual encyclopedia of the pussy made for you to understand.
2: But you asterisk the word pussy. Why? Mm -hmm. We propose using the word pussy instead of vagina. Vagina means it comes from the word... Latin word for sword holder. So we basically call our pussies that thing you put a penis in, which I don't believe that my body exists as an object of service to the penis. That just bothers me. Um, I also think it's overly focused on the vagina when there's all these other parts. There's the uterus, there's the clitoris, there's the vulva there's the bladder and and they're all part of a system. And we don't have a word for that whole system. And that really bothers me. Like, what if we didn't have a word for leg? And it was just foot, knee, shin, thigh. You know, would we think of a leg as a unit? Like we have a unit that's a system of parts and we don't even have, think of it, there's no concept for that. And, And I think that needs to change. There's no reason when you see the reproductive system as a kid in an anatomy textbook that the clitoris should be taken out. It's a huge organ. And we also, in our definition of pussy, include maybe some testes, because people can have a lot of different combinations of parts. And so it's a genderless concept that we propose as well.
0: Pussy PD is a community source project. Over 200 people from three continents contributed. How did you find the contributors?
2: Well, I mean, only a small percentage are people I found. The rest of them are people that found us. And we just put out calls on social media and people got in touch and said, yeah, I want to help. Actually, that gave me a lot of hope. I don't have a lot of hope about the future of this democracy, but I do have a higher opinion of human beings than I did when I started this project, honestly, because people came through just in enormous ways. And because we were we're extremely serious about making sure that this is good quality information, which meant a very limited number of acceptable sources. So everything, you know, it was like, okay, for, for rates and occurrences, you can check these websites, these medical journals. And people were extremely patient with me and willing to really go through this process of checking every study's funding. Where did the funding for this study come from? Is this a conflict of interest that we can accept or not? And People who were not professional writers or researchers were willing to give me so much of their time to do this together because they also wanted the final product to exist. And and that was just such a beautiful thing that kept me going through so much exhaustion.
0: Most of the articles were written on a volunteer basis. The exception was the articles on trans, non-binary, intersex, and disability portals that you have. How important was it to you to include those portals?
2: There was no option. Period.
0: Good. Pussypedia contains a 3D interactive model of the whole pussy system. It's made by BioDigital, so you can see what you're talking about and get a spatial understanding of the area. Which is extraordinary. I've spent quite a lot of time on It's So cool. It is absolutely extraordinary. What made you decide to do that three D interactive model, and
2: how did you get it done? What happened was I was okay. I was arguing with my ex boyfriend about whether or not everyone can square. It. The answer is you can't answer that question because you can't really prove the negative cases. So. It's sort of unanswerable, but I was reading about how squirting works, and I was trying to understand where the bladder is in relation to the vagina and clitoris, and I couldn't from the words I was reading, so I started trying to look at diagrams, but 2D diagrams of 3D things, it's really hard for me to understand spatial relationships from that. So I started looking for a 3D model, And I couldn't find one. And I was like, oh, we need this. I I need this, so everyone else needs it for sure. And so I started asking around, and a friend of mine connected me to BioDigital Human who already had it, and they let us use theirs. Oh, wonderful. Yeah.
0: Um, I'd like to quote something you wrote on the site in the hopes that you can answer the question that you indeed pose. You say, Talcum powder increases risk of ovarian cancer. Women who douche once per week or more experience bacterial vaginosis more often than women who do not douche. And yet, both talcum powder and douches are sold on the shelves of most pharmacies. You ask the question, How is this possible? I want to ask that question, too. What have you found in your research and in doing this work? How
2: is it possible? Um, nobody cares about making sure that we're okay. This is a capitalism. I mean, Coca-Cola is poison. <laughs> nobody cares. That's not, that's not how our, our society is set up. Our safety is not a fueling factor in any decisions being made at high levels. Do you feel
0: that this information that you're providing people is power?
2: Knowledge is power. I hope to give people a way to make more informed decisions. We should have at least enough power to have control over our own bodies. But I also hope that through normalizing. I mean, a lot of what Pussypedia is trying to do is, is normalize these parts and and take down these ancient taboos that are just absurd because they cause us to seed our power. So knowledge is power. Being able to say, I'm not going to buy talc because it's carcinogenic. But also, when you don't live with deep shame you assert your needs and desires, if you don't think it's wrong for you to be having sex and you're already feeling guilty, so deeply guilty that you don't even understand, you know, and we don't even understand what's going on, I think, I would have had way less sex. (laughs) I would have had, you know, personally, I would have had way less sex if I didn't already feel bad about Wanting it, I think, or or just knowing how to say no, asserting my own wants, and being like, no, no, thanks, or yes, you have to use a fucking condom. Oh, excuse me, you can you can curse, it's okay. Yeah, you know, I think um, not feeling ashamed, I hope, will lead to people saying, no, I don't want that. You're doing it wrong. To the left, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, use a condom or. Hey, excuse me, I haven't come yet. Wake up. (laughs) (laughs) Is it true
0: that in your research you found that most people who have vulvas and vaginas couldn't draw them?
2: No, not vulvas and vaginas, but the clitoris. Most people, vast majority of people, have no idea what a clitoris looks like. They think it's just the little button on the outside. It looks like a sort of skinny cleft penguin. I was going to say, it looks like now that, I, that I've
0: that i seen the entire 3D model, it looks a little bit like a bird.
2: Yeah, bird. Yeah. It's so interesting.
0: Zoe, mm-hmm. so if people are interested in contributing or getting involved, how can they volunteer?
2: I'm going to the contribute page on pussypedia.net and there's different ways that people can be involved. The simplest way is just to suggest resources that we can include in the resource portal, and there's a form for you to send them to us. You can write articles, you can edit, you can fact check, or also you can just give us money, which is what we really need the most and makes all the rest of the things way easier.
0: So to go to Pussypedia.net and then go to the Contribute section.
2: Yeah, there's also Donate at the Top, Donate at the Bottom, Donate okay. everywhere, you'll find it. Wonderful. Zoe, I have one last
0: question for you. I understand that you list one of your skills as
2: sword fighting. Really? Really? <laughs> I think um, the only kind of sword fighting I've ever actually done is like, (laughs) no, that was just me hating LinkedIn. I hate LinkedIn. (laughs) LinkedIn and resumes. People ask me for a resume. I'm like, give me your address. I'll mail it to you on a floppy disk. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I cannot fit my career onto these things. I cannot explain myself in this sort of, format that we're used to using for explaining ourselves so i just hate linkedin and i've i don't, i don't know how to fit my career into it and they're like what skills do you have and i think i was like i don't know sort of finding <laughs> collecting acorns Yeah, yes. that was a good one too <laughs> that's because i feel like a squirrel <laughs> um <laughs> it's just my instinct to um just fly in the face of authority yeah I which guess. is what i love most about
0: you Zoe Mendelsohn, thank you so much for giving me faith in the next generation of makers and creators. And thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters.
2: Thank you, Davia. Thank you so much for having me.
0: To learn more about Zoe Mendelsohn and her work, you can go to youngzozo.com or pussypedia.net. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm
3: Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Please write a review or just link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.